Well, just a little bit of background story on the sermon this morning and why the sermon is not the one that's in your bulletins this morning. Um, I had every intention to preach from Galatians 2.14 today, and I have pages upon pages of my research to prove that. Around uh, Wednesday and Thursday, I was reminded of what is coming up in a few short weeks. Uh, Thanksgiving and a few short weeks after that, Christmas. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, it is the most discouraging time of the year for me. For me, January, early January is the most like heartbreaking time because you know, I don't know why they put Thanksgiving and Christmas so close together. <laughs> right? So like compacted time with family and relatives and in-laws. They should have spread it out, like Thanksgiving in June and Christmas in December. But meeting with family members and seeing all the unresolved conflict that is there, seeing all the dysfunction and sinfulness and resentment, and seeing how they're growing harder, hardened towards Christ rather than softer, it always uh, leaves me quite discouraged um, by January and it takes me weeks to recover. So I remember last year thinking, I need to for my own sake, and I talked to many of you as well, that this season is very difficult spiritually for those reasons. And I remember wanting to uh, do a sermon on forgiveness, sermon on how to relate to one another as family members, so that our hearts be ready and prepared to sacrificially serve our, our family during this time. So I began that process of study around Thursday. But as, we, as I considered um, what will be happening uh, in two weeks, next week George Neiman is speaking, and then that Friday Bob and I are leaving, and the India team is leaving. And in light of the fact that Mr. Steeman is coming, speaking about missions, um, you know, late Friday I felt the need to not preach on this topic on family, although it's important, but to speak on something that is per- pertinent to uh, what God is leading us to in terms of, of evangelism and missions. So to that end, uh, we're going to revisit one of our studies in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. We will read from 27 through 36, but the sermon is uh, just going to be two verses from 27 and 28. But let us read the whole passage together. Let's stand up. Please rise and uh, for the reading of God's word. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come. For your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. 
So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Please be seated. The title of the message is The Ultimate End of All Things. The Ultimate End of All Things. And I'll begin by telling you that this study is a result of a joint venture. Three men have partnered together to make this study possible. And of the three men, and I am the one of the three, I have contributed the least to this message. So I deserve the least amount of credit. The foundation for this study was laid by Pastor Jonathan Edwards. He wrote the book, The End for Which God Created the World. It is a masterful treatise on the glory of God. How the glory of God is the ultimate end of all things. And um, I have benefited greatly from this book. My mind doesn't function in this way. My mind, you know, very, I'm a very simple guy, regular guy. One plus one is two. And that's about the extent of my logical abilities. But Edwards, he's able to plumb the depths of scripture and bring out these precious jewels. Uh, and, he's, and he wrote, it, wrote them down on paper so that over 200 years later, I could read and, and have my heart stirred by his teachings from the word of God. It is in this book that he wrote, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So Edwards laid the foundation and uh, Pastor John Piper built a huge mansion on top of this foundation when he wrote the book, God's Passion for His Glory. God's Passion for His Glory. It's amazing. Uh, that book was sitting on my bookshelf for years. This year, sitting there, and I'll walk by it and look at it. One day, <laughs> one day, maybe a pretty thick book. One day. And uh, I took it down and read it. And it's the most amazing book. I mean, it... it changed my heart towards God, Christ, and evangelism and missions. Uh, I was talking, we were talking with Jason and Jane, and Jane was saying it changed her life, right? And so she had read the book, Jason hadn't read the book, right? That's why we're praying for Jason, right? (laughs) Changed Jason's wife's life, right? (laughs) That's how powerful this book is. Um, And uh, he paraphrased Edwards in his book, The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. How do we glorify God? By enjoying him forever. And so it is joy in God that is the motivation for everything in this life. 
And that is what glorifies God. It's joy. When we, when we praise God out of joy, when we come to church with free will, we come with joy. We serve, knowing that we are free, we choose to serve with joy that glorifies God. But we, with joy, we go to missions. If we do it out of guilt or do it out of duty, it undermines the glory of God. It cheapens God's grace, right? It supplants the gospel message. It diminishes God. It exalts man and our, our work. It exalts man and it lowers God. God is glorified and exalted when our motivation is joy over him and over what he has done through the cross of Christ. Edwards laid the foundation. Piper built this mansion. You know, my work is to cut the lawn. You know, my work has been to put the curtains on. I've done the least uh, of the of the three, and uh, I am just greatly indebted uh, to these men for our study. That I, I we pray that, that would help us get rooted and grounded in the gospel. And that the gospel would be what propels us to either stay in Orange County and for 40 years do nothing else but raise a godly family, be a good servant in the church, right? care for your children, work hard, be a testimony for Christ at work, right? take your kids to AYSO, right? watch your kids graduate from college, high school and college, and you retire in Orange County, and you just faithfully serve the church. And the gospel joy motivates you, and God will glorify you, and the root is the gospel, or the gospel motivates you to go to a foreign country, lay down your life, sacrifice greatly for the cause of Christ, and yet there is no self-centered thought whatsoever. There is no boasting in yourself whatsoever, because what has propelled you to do this is not to seek approval of man, but it's solely the glory of Christ by your joy. We pray that, that this sermon given today would help us be rooted and grounded in the gospel so that whatever God's will for us, we would rejoice and thus bring glory to Him. I'll begin by saying that um, Joy is a very difficult thing. Joy for many, if not all of us, is an infrequent reality. It's a rare quality found, sadly, even among many believers. We all have a tendency, as Dennis Prager explained, the missing tile syndrome. We, our hearts gravitate towards, we become fixated towards what is missing in our lives and we tie our lack of joy, our unhappiness to that one thing that is missing in our lives. And we say, if only I had this one thing, I will have joy. Missing tiles, with these tiles up on the ceiling and today there's not a single tile missing. That doesn't help me in my illustration. But let's say you're in a room and all these uh, ceiling tiles, and there was one tile missing, what would happen? You would focus on that one tile. Right? Likewise, that's the way we look at our lives. Right? If I had this one thing, I would be content. 
I would be happy. And so Christians are constantly fretting, worrying, complaining, uh, perpetually unsatisfied, unhappy, and it could be uh, maybe a, a job, maybe it could be some kind of gift or talent or intelligence or ability. It could be a relationship, boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, or it could be uh, no children or you have too many kids, right? You have too many tiles, and so you're complaining or wrong kind of child, or, or um, wrong kind of family, wrong kind of parents. And so you are fixated on this one thing, and you feel justified. You have every right uh, to feel unhappy. We... Uh, we find that the Bible tells us that is not the reason for our unhappiness. What is missing in our lives is not anything in this world. The reason for our lack of joy is a, is a God-centered, soul-satisfying, heart-enlarging knowledge of God. We don't see the glory of God. We don't know the glory of God. Glory of God is just a phrase. It's Christianese. It's the lingo that we throw around here and there. But we are blind to it. We are most ignorant of that. And what is the greatest proof of our ignorance of God's glory is when there is lack of joy in our hearts. Our unhappiness as Christians is directly directly linked to our lack of knowledge and not just notional knowledge of the glory of God, but this experiential knowledge of the glory of God. I mean, this is so important. This is one of Edward's greatest contributions to Christianity. That's why Piper is so tied to Edward's because that's what Piper talks about constantly with every book is this idea of experiencing God, being satisfied in God, delighting in God, experiencing the glory of God. It is one thing to know the glory of God. It is another thing to experience, to taste, to savor, to, to have in your heart a heart experience of this glory where you not just know God, but you enjoy God through the cross, through the gospel. Jonathan Edwards said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But God is the substance. These are but scattered beings. But God is the sun. These are but streams. But God is the ocean. So we experience the joy of family, the joy of children, the joy of friendships, the joy of earthly things. But these are shadows. Right? The beam is God. If we enjoy the world and yet not understand that God is far greater in joy in our satisfaction, we've missed the glory of God. 
John Flavel said, Christ is the very essence of all delights and pleasures. So any joy that we experience on the earth, what is the substance? What is the essence? What is the source of that joy? It is God. All, as all the rivers are gathered into the ocean, which is the meeting place of all the waters in the world, so Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. So glory of God is not just something to know. It's not a theological truth to understand but something that we, we want to experience, that is to be our boast, so much so, it is our boast. Jeremiah 9, 23, Jeremiah said, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, strong man boast of his strength, rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast that he understands me and that he knows me. That he knows, God says that he knows me. And so that's, so God wants to uh, display His glory. God wants us to experience His glory because He wants us to know Him. He wants us to have a relationship with Him. I mean, it's such cliche, but it's, and it's just wrongly used by the world. You look at Scripture, and it's an amazing truth that God of the universe, God the creator, thrice holy God, gave his son, fulfilled a legal obligation because of our sins. He paid the price. But he did that so that he might have a relationship with us. The purpose of the cross was that we might have a relationship with him. So we are fixated on on the legalities of what occurred and miss out on the purpose. You know, we adopted Ethan. We had to go to court. We had to meet the judge. And he had to pound that gavel to make adoption legal. But we're not fixated on that. We're fixated on the purpose of that adoption is so that Ethan might be our son. And that is what we enjoy. Not We don't take out that legal document and and read it over and over again and and, and revel in what occurred in that courtroom like we won a case. Because the purpose of that whole transaction was for our relationship, likewise with God. God wants us to understand His glory and the purpose of it, which is that you and I might know and experience His glory in our lives, that we might enjoy Him as a father, you might experience him as sons who've been adopted, co-heirs with Christ. I was reading this week, and there was a section in this book, uh, William Hordern, Living by Grace, and uh, another book that was just in my bookshelf, sitting there for like six months. I took it down, and it was, you know, I was I was weeping. My wife was uh, sitting there emailing and doing her work and I was just weeping sitting next to her it was so powerful it was so moving and he he was saying that uh, in Luke 15 the, the particle sons the older son younger son the younger son comes to the father and says uh, give me my inheritance I want my inheritance before you die the father could have uh, rejected that request and the younger son wasn't the kind of guy who had anything on his own resources to go away and uh, leave the family. So he could have rejected his younger son's 
request. But he didn't. Because the father wanted a son, but not a slave. If the father said, no, I'm not going to give you what you want. Right? I want you to stay and be a part of this family. He would have stayed, but his heart would have been with the family. He would have been a slave. Just serving the father out of duty, right? out of need, but not out of love. So the father took that risk because he wants, he loves his son. He wants a relationship with his son. He doesn't want to force a relationship. When you force a relationship, that's not a real relationship. He wants a relationship based on freedom. He took that, he took that risk, sent, gave the son what he wanted, and he, and he left. His son comes back, and what does the son say? I am unworthy to be your son. Make me a slave. And the father takes him back. Because he wanted a son. This is what he wanted. So the son said, now I'll be your slave. No, you're my son. The older son comes and he says, I have slaved for you. I've been your slave all these years. You never give me anything. And the older son, for him, it wasn't a relationship. He was there all this time, outwardly obeying, but his heart was, heart was far away. That is not what the father in the parable wanted. And that is not what God the Father wants from us. We don't, he doesn't want a legal relationship with us where we do things outwardly and our hearts are not enjoying God's glory. We're not loving him. We're not receiving his love. We don't see him as beautiful. We don't view him as the highest value, our highest delight and, and treasure. No, we're just slaving for God. Our hearts are far away. He wants that free relationship with us. He wants us to understand what, who he is, what he has done, and he wants us to grow in our enjoyment of God. So that is our purpose this morning. We want to uh, look more deeply into the glory of God. We want to uh, see uh, God's motivation for the cross. God's motivation behind sending his son. And I think it'll, it'll surprise you. And I, I pray it'll make, it'll cause you to view God, your view of God even be, be even more raised because of what we find in this passage. In John 12, we find that we get a glimpse of uh, Jesus' motivation for going to the cross. Why, why he came, why he died. You know, I was talking to uh, someone uh, recently, who was not, not a Christian, and the person couldn't get over, why did God, why did Jesus die? He didn't have to. I, I wouldn't do this for, for a sinner. Why would he do this? It, it, it did not make sense for her. And at that moment, like I was struck. That's right. Jesus didn't need to die on the cross for our sins. He could have easily said, no, they're not worth it. These sinners, these ingrates, these selfish, prideful people, no, I choose not to. What compelled Christ to, uh, to go to the cross and experience hell, separation from the Father, 
on our behalf. We find uh, verse 7. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. It is but for this uh, purpose I have come. And the very next verse. Verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And verse 28. Father, glorify your name. This was uh, what compelled Christ to go to Calvary. The glory of the Father. His soul was troubled with the prospect of his death on the cross. But he went to the cross with joy because he sought the glory of God as his highest end. He was zealous for God's glory. Now, the question is, then what is God's motivation for sending his son? Why? What is compelling God to do this, to sacrifice his one and only beloved son? What is the ultimate end? What is the purpose of God? Three proposals. The first is because God loves the world. John 3.16. He does. He did all these things because of his love for the world. His love for the world governs his actions. So he is um, child-centered. You know, parents who live for their children and they'll do anything, they'll sacrifice anything, even their marriage for their child. Well, this is who God is. He worships us. He idolizes us. So much so, he'll sacrifice even a member of his own family because of us. Second is uh, Romans 5a, God's love for the elect. God has general love, common grace love for the world, Matthew 5. But God has a special, unconditional, sacrificial, eternal love for his elect people. And because he loves the elect so much, he idolizes them, he values them so much that he would sacrifice. He would humiliate himself. He would humble his son. He would crush him and make him a guilt offering because of his love for the elect. I mean, I I don't know if you've got the sense or not, but... I don't know if you can tell, I don't agree with those first two options, right? No, we find that God's motivation is not man-centered. God's motivation is not a re- response, a reaction. God's, it's not about us. The Bible is not about us. The Bible is about God. And verse 28b tells us, the true motivation of God sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. What is it? It is his name. Father, glorify your name. I have glorified it. I have. And I'll glorify it again. When? When Jesus is lifted up on the cross. Whose name will be glorified? It's the name of our God and Father. The Father of Jesus Christ. The Father's vocal response reveals that God is passionate about the glory of His name. He is passionate for His glory. Our Lord's um, incarnation, His public ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension 
was all for the glory of God the Father. I mean, it says in uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. This is the, the background story of what happened. It's, uh, it's Christology. It's a, it's a revelation of Christ who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus was God in every way. But he voluntarily made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, what did God do? God exalted Jesus to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And here is the purpose clause at the end of verse 12, to the glory of God the Father. Why all of this? His incarnation, His humiliation, His death on the cross, His exaltation. Why? To the glory of God the Father. Jonathan Edwards said, It appears that all that is ever spoken of in the scriptures as an ultimate end of God's work is found in that phrase. The glory of God. So everything God does is contained in that phrase. He does it for this. The glory of himself. In the creatures knowing, esteeming, loving, rejoicing, praising, the glory of God is exhibited and acknowledged. Here is both an emanation and remination. The beams of God's glory come from God. They are of God and returns to God. So that the whole is of God, in God, and to God. He is all. He is the beginning, the middle, and the end. God sent his son for the glory of himself, for the glory of his name. And this is uh, consistent with the scriptures all the way from the Old Testament. From the very beginning, God delivered Israel out of Egypt, Exodus 7, 5, for his name's sake. Psalm 106, verse 8, David says he saved them for his own name's sake. Why did he save Israel? For his own glory. God redeemed Israel from their Babylonian captivity again. For his name's sake, Isaiah 48, 9. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back. For my own sake, I do this. Ezekiel 39, 25. I am zealous for my holy name. God saved the elect, saves the elect for his own name's sake. Psalm 79, 9. 1 John 2, 12. 1 Timothy 1, 14 through 17. It is true, God loves the world. It is true, God loves the elect. But the foremost motivation for the cross is God himself. God does it for his own glory. What is the glory of God? I mean, there... This is why this is what this is why he he sent his son to the cross. So what is God's glory? It is I mean we don't have words to describe the glory of God. It's the 
It's the revelation of God, who God is. It's the unveiling of God's true character, true nature. And we find in God the greatest beauty, the highest power. We find that he is God in greatness and power and authority, perfection of his divine attributes. We find that he is thrice holy. God's glory is the core expression of his majesty. And this is what God has uh, revealed to us. This is what we see in the cross of Christ. We get a full-orbed, 3D depiction of God's beauty as Christians who know the gospel. Remember Moses made that request. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And uh, God said, I can't show you my face because no one can see God and live. I'll put you on a cleft on a rock and I will pass by. As I pass by, I will cover your face. For if you see me, you will die. But as I pass by, I will remove my hand, and you will see a fading, diminishing remnant of my glory as I pass by, and that will be enough for you. And when Moses came down from that mountain, his face was glowing. So much so, he had to veil it from the people, because he didn't want the people to have this picture of the of the. Uh, decreasing glory left on his face to be a picture of God. Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we, with unveiled faces, we reflect the Lord's glory. We reflect with unveiled faces, but where do we see God? We see the fullness of God's glory. And we reflect it with our faces. How? We are face to face with the glory of God as we ponder upon the message of the gospel, as we know and experience Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, that through him we have been reconciled to the Father. All our debt is forgiven. And now we have this adoption into his family where we are called sons of God and we have this freedom to approach him with boldness and confidence. And so we reflect God's glory in this world because we are beholding God's face in the gospel and it is through that beholding we are transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So just suffice to say, when, when, we, uh, when we consider the cross, when we believe in the gospel, when we behold the, the message of the Son, we are seeing the face of God. And the cross is the blazing center of the glory of God. We are seeing all that is beautiful, all that is mighty, majestic, glorious, holy in the gospel, and he has given it to us. Now, now it is our turn, right? It is our stewardship. It is our privilege. 
Jesus went to the cross for the glory of God. God the Father sent Jesus for the glory of God. The Holy Spirit applies the gospel to our hearts for the glory of God. Now as believers, we have been given the glory of God and we've experienced it to the gospel. And now it is our privilege to glorify God. Does that make sense? We get to glorify the Father. This is, this is the driving motivation of Christ, driving motivation of God, God himself and the Holy Spirit, and this is to be our driving motivation. Not guilt, not duty, not obligation, not religion. Out of freedom, it is our joy to glorify God. How do we glorify God? How? A few ways. Number one, get the gospel right. God is glorified when we rightly believe the gospel. When we agree with the gospel. When we walk in line with the gospel when how we live reflects the gospel of Christ. When we openly accuse ourselves and condemn ourselves and say what the world will never say, we say, I am the worst sinner I know. I am the chief sinner. We are not like the Pharisees. If we condemn people in this world... And the Pharisees were, Jesus, how can you uh, eat with these prostitutes? How can you fellowship with tax collectors? Right? They're sinners. And Jesus is saying, they are sinners, but so are you. <laughs> what are the Pharisees saying? Pharisees are saying, they're great sinners, and we are not. You should be dining with us. But what Jesus was saying is, no, right? they are sinners, it's true, but they know their sins. You're worse because you're sinners and you don't know you are sins. You're sinners. You're blind to your sin. Right? Every society has their permissible sins that we're blind to. And because we happen to be living in a society that correlates with our morality, we feel more righteous. So right now, many of us, maybe we feel we're more righteous because we don't, we're not immoral like our society. Right? This sex-infatuated world, their immoral relationships, right? all the movies and music, pornography, we feel we are more righteous because we don't, Immerse our, we don't, we're not engaged in sin in that way, and we feel we look down and condemn those, right, who are who are uh, sitting in that way. But do we not realize that's just our society? That's just our society's definition of sin. But that's not God's definition of sin. It's much broader. 150 years ago, slavery was legal. And yet slave owners who mistreated their slaves were leaders in the churches, were elders in the churches, and they thought 
that was purely righteous. They were better than others, even though we look back and we can't understand how they were doing this. 50 years ago, racial discrimination was part and parcel of Christianity. And they were blind to it. So the Pharisees, they were well aware of the sins that the, fer- the tax collectors and the prostitutes were committing, and yet were blind to their own sins. The, re- the gospel tells us, no, all have fallen short in the glory of God. We are all sinners. And in our own hearts, our heart attitude is, I am the chief. At any point, we look at someone else and say, we are better at that point. We're not walking in line with the gospel. We glorify God when we get the gospel right and we agree with the gospel on what it says about us and what it says about God. The first way to get the gospel, to glorify God is, is to get the gospel right. Secondly, grow through faith in the gospel. You glorify God when we bear fruit. But you got to bear fruit in a certain way. You got to grow in a certain way. If you grow, if I grow out of my own strength and ability, I do not glorify God. If I, out of my own will and discipline, my own resolve and commitment, study the Bible, apply it in my life, and walk in a manner that is holy, I might look like I'm glorifying God to you, but God knows the heart. God is not glorified. John 15, 8, abide in me, apart from me, you can do nothing. That is a scary verse. Because, I don't know about your experience, but I've done spiritual things when I was not abiding in Christ. I have done things where I know I'm not walking the Spirit. I don't have faith in my heart. I'm not relying upon the Spirit. And yet, I produce good things. And God says, no, there will come a day of believer's judgment when it will be revealed. Whether you're building your Christian life with wood, hair, or straw, or gold, silver, and precious stones, on that day, your motivation of your heart will be exposed, right? First Corinthians 3. And at that time, you'll receive praise from the Father. As so if your motivation was your flesh, all that looked good to everyone else will be burned up. You yourself will be saved as though escaping to the flames, but all your works will not bring glory to God. Only that which was motivated by the gospel, by his son, abiding in him, gold, silver, precious stones, that will remain. And that will bring glory to the Father. So I think we, we, we ought not, you know, make any judgments now who the mature Christians are, who are the believers that are glorifying God. It is far too early in the game. We can't know the heart. Even on that believer's judgment day, we'll be shocked. We'll be like taken for a loop. We'll be surprised. People we thought were like just the godly of saints. They have nothing, right? They have got nothing. They've got like speedos on. That's it. <laughs> God out of his grace, give them speedos. That's all they got, right? What a weird picture, right? <laughs> but someone else, quiet. All right, serving in the background, 
wasn't a leader, didn't make a lot of noise. But man, they're walking around like in an SUV, you know, with those spinner wheels and, you know, like iPad in the back. I mean, I don't know. They got like, they're just decked out because their motivation was faith in Christ. You need to grow, grow by the gospel. In 1 Peter 2, 2, 2 and 3, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Right? What is that pure spiritual milk? Look at the context. The previous passage, 1 Peter 1, I'll just go to 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What is that word of God? This is the word of God, verse 25, that remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What is the word of God by which we are saved and which we grow up in our salvation? It is the good, it's the evangelia. It is the gospel. Right? Gospel is not the milk and the law, the meat. No, gospel is the, is the meat. It is the milk. It is by how we are saved. It is by how we, are, how we grow. And it is by the gospel alone that we glorify God. We bear fruit in any other way apart from the gospel, then we do not glorify God. We are no better than those who, who hold to a false gospel in sanctification. If we are growing out of the flesh and not out of spirit, depending upon Jesus Christ. So spiritually grow through the gospel. Let's get to number three. Last one. Number three is um, be as happy as you can in God forever. Be happy as you can. I mean, break off the law. Remove your burden. Experience freedom that God has given to you. Bad illustration, I hope you make, it makes sense to you, but I remember in high school, I, I would ditch school. I hated school. Teachers were the enemy. I couldn't wait till I went to college to experience that freedom. My first class in college, I sat there in the middle of lecture. I had nowhere to go. I got up and left. And I felt so good, right? Because in high school, you couldn't do that, right? In high school, you can't just leave in the middle of class. They'll send you to the principal's office. You get detention, you get suspended. But in college, right, you're free. So I didn't know where to go, but I want to say I have the right. I am free. All right, sorry, students, don't do this. But <laughs> my kids, don't listen. But middle of class, I know where to go. I got up and I left. And I felt this freedom. Now, now that, the illustration is not about that. The illustration is, we have this freedom given to us in Christ to enjoy the glory of God. And yet we're still living like spiritual beggars in the ghetto, feeding on the law, living out of fear and fear of man and guilt and duty and obligation. And all the while, we're not enjoying the relationship given to us by God. Because you want to be safe. Instead of walking by faith, taking that risk and walking with Christ, trusting in Christ and enjoying God. Right? Enjoy God, enjoy 
the cross, enjoy the freedom that he has given to us. And when we do that, we are honoring him. When we do that, we're honoring him. I gave this illustration a long time ago. And, and let's say I, I, take, I took my wife on a date. I planned this date for weeks. I, I checked the weather on, on weather.com. I took her to Laguna Beach right by that uh, Las Brisas area. I found out exactly when the sun sets. And I, I set up a nice bouquet of flowers on the beach with a blanket and, and, and a nice snack. And uh, I take her out there. And my wife says, oh, I, I, I hate outdoors, you know. I, I hate sand, you know, I'm allergic to flowers, right? You know, blanket doesn't match my you know, shirt. Right, she's just grumbling, unhappy. Right. It's not about what I did, but my heart, but she, she's not, it's not honoring, right? If she were to enjoy everything and enjoy James, you made this weather happen for me, right? You caused you know, the sun to set right at this moment for me. You did all of this for me. Then in that way, right, she honors me. Likewise, right, if we look at the missing tower of our lives and we're grumbling and unhappy and lack of joy, that is not holiness. That is not spiritual maturity. That is not sanctification. Whatever level of maturity God has given to you right now, whatever situation, whatever facing you, God in His sovereignty has ordained it. How do we glorify God? By enjoying Him, by rejoicing in Him, by thanking Him, by rejoicing every gift that He has given to us. And may this joy propel us to missions. Just like Jesus Christ. Out of the joy set before me endure the cross. It is with this joy we are to go. We are to share the gospel, not out of duty, not out of obligation, not out of burden or guilt. We go, and it is our prayer that we would go to India. We would go to places like Africa. And it is with joy that we will go. Because all the while, we are enjoying the glory of God given to his son. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for, Lord, you treat us not as your servants, but as your friends. For you have revealed the the hidden things, previously hidden things. You revealed them to us that we might know not just what you have done, but why you sent your son, why you would love us so, and what we are to do in response to the love that you have given to us in Christ. Lord, may the cross of Christ be our joy, be our freedom, and may it color and influence and affect everything we do, and all the while, whether we, whatever we do in life, that we would do it with joy, because we know we know you, and you know us. We thank you, Lord, as we remember the cross of Christ, the bread and cup. Lord, grant us this joy deep within. In Jesus' name we pray. Pray, amen.